Before I pray and read the scripture, I just want to let you know that today we have the pleasure of having a, a guest preacher, uh, Mr. Tim Luddy, uh, Pastor Tim Luddy, who is an ordained EPC minister living in Danbury at the moment, will be preaching while Matt is away on vacation. So I get a different voice today. Let's pray. Open our eyes to see your hand at work. Open our ears to hear your voice in the darkness. And open our hearts to hear your words from Scripture this morning. Amen. Scripture for this morning is 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 13. Uh, excuse me, 8 to 23. Again, 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 23. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha. The prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was, hold, it was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan, Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots, of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Be to 
Praise be to Christ. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, the barn has been legendary for me down through the years uh, because during our first time living in Connecticut, we worshiped at Brighton Presbyterian, excuse me, not Brighton, that's where I came from as pastor, Calvary Presbyterian Church in Enfield, Connecticut. And everyone there would talk about, have you been to the barn? Go to the barn, that's the place. And I would always have to say, no, I, I know it's in Simsbury, but here I am today at the barn. So it is indeed great to be with you today um, to uh, preach from this passage in 2 Kings 6. One thing before we dig in, uh, I tend to use the NIV when I prepare. So the NIV has the, the kingdom and the army that's set against Israel as being from Aram. Another name for Aram was Arameans. Later on, they would become the Assyrians, or be named the Assyrians, and then hence be the Syrians. So that's why there's, there's that difference in translation. But I'll be speaking of them as from Aram this morning, just so there's no confusion. I hope there's not. Have you ever had an experience in life where God resolved a problem that you had in a way that was very unique, unusual, and unexpected. I remember a time in the early 1990s when my father-in-law, Don, who's with the Lord now, was facing a triple bypass operation to save his life. And he did not have much insurance. So when the operation was successfully completed, and some months later, he went to hospital administrators to sit down with them to work out how he would pay back this very large bill. And once he finished opening up the conversation, the, one of the administrators said to him, thanks to a generous grant, the hospital has a program to cancel certain hospital bills. He went on to say to Don, we're canceling yours. Very unique way of pro providing by taking away something that was over my father-in-law's head. Have you ever had a circumstance like that where you had a a bill that was big and then suddenly a few days later it just got disappeared or canceled, withdrawn? Or a person who's a thorn in your side at work that quits or is all of a sudden laid off? That's happened to me three times. <laughs> I like to call that addition by subtraction. Now, a default prayer for times when you know, we're in, in experiencing trouble, is, Lord, please add something. Please provide something, and you fill in the blank. But have you ever asked God to remove something? Now, addition by subtraction is very much a part of this story uh, involving God's people and God's prophet, Elisha. But before I get into the text, I want us to take a brief journey in a theological and historical helicopter, if you will, to get a virtual view of why things are happening the way they are on the ground, asking that question all throughout. 
Well, to start, there's the events of the fall, where God gave a commandment to Adam and Eve. I'm a water person. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Or how about the covenant that God made with Moses after the people were released from slavery in Egypt? From Exodus 19, 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my prized possession. Exodus 19, 5. Then he lists there uh, some of the blessings for their obedience, which are further listed in Deuteronomy 28. And along with these blessings, Moses presented what was called, or what is called, covenant curses, or consequences of disobedience of God's commands. We read from Deuteronomy 28:15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all of his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Then Moses lists out all the curses. Now, if we had more time, we would clearly see that the curses that are listed in Deuteronomy 28 are actually taking place on the ground throughout the times of the first and second kings. Even through the time and ministry of Elisha, whom this passage centers on. And one curse of note was the promise that God would take his people and forcibly remove them from the promised land and then send them into captivity in Assyria and Babylon. So that was in their future. We can also see that idolatry was rampant throughout the land. At this time, you may recall, it was a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. And uh, idolatry was just everywhere. Idolatry being anything that captures the imagination and the affection over and above God. That's anything, anyone, anything. So this was just rampant throughout the land. And the evidence of this is the brief opening formulaic, formulaic descriptor that the author of First and Second King uses uh, to describe the kings of Judah and Israel, where he, where he writes often, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. According to Old Testament scholar uh, John Bimson, the single most important criterion for the author of First and Second Kings is what the king did or did not do for the worship of God's people. In other words, did the king support and promote idolatry? Or did he uh, promote the worship of Yahweh alone? Sadly, most of the kings of Israel were engaged in the former. Now there's one more important thing to see as we look at First and Second Kings, the time of First and Second Kings from a high level, and that is that God continually demonstrates his, his faithfulness to his promises. He makes many promises, and he is faithful to keep all of them as is seen in the text. Now it would take a long and I mean long sermon series, to unpack all the scripture texts that include how God was faithful to keep all of his promises, even when his people were unfaithful. 
like his promise of a coming savior on the heels of the fall in the garden from Genesis 3.15. Or the words of encouragement from the prophets like Isaiah that although they were going to go into exile for a period of time, God would restore a remnant of his people in the promised land. See uh, Isaiah 11.10-16. So one of the things we need to take away here for us, us today in 2023 is that we, as a people, as God's children, are responsible for our actions. We all know that it's highly likely that if we break a law or a command, nobody likes this word, but there will be a consequence. Yet in spite of that truth, God keeps all of his promises all the time. His promises of consequences, yes, but also his promises of rescue and salvation. And we celebrate that. This is the helicopter view of the context of today's passage that answers the question in part, why are things the way they are down there? Back on the ground, we see the situation is clearly marked out by the author in verse 8, where he writes, Now the king of Aram, Aram, was at war with Israel. The king of Aram wants to establish his headquarters to position his army for the next strike against Israel. Uh, From verse 9, Elisha passes along some hot intelligence that he's received from the Lord to the king of Israel, where he tells the king, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. In verse 10, we learn that this type of supernatural intelligence or, or word was given to Elisha on many occasions, and he would pass that right along to the king of Israel. And every time the king of Aram made a plan, Elisha was privy to his thoughts and speech. This became very frustrating to the king of Aram. He began to suspect that he had a traitor in his camp, But one of the king's officers correctly discerns the situation for the king when he says in verse 12, Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Wow. So this text is pretty clear here that Elisha was not standing outside the king of Aram's tent, listening in on his conversations and spying. The fact that they will set out to travel a distance to try to capture Elisha from verse 11 tells us that Elisha is not close by, except supernaturally. God has given him an ear to hear everything. Wow, God can do things like that? You bet. You bet. In verse 13 and 14, The king of Aram then orders a strong army, a strong force, to be sent to capture Elisha. So they assembled and traveled by night so as to avoid detection. Uh, And what becomes evident here in the story is that the miraculous work of God, which we're witnessing here through the intel that Elisha gets, uh, can only be interpreted through the eyes of faith. If a person uh, really knew that God listens in on every conversation 
and then reports it back to us directly or to others, that ought to cause us pause. When someone says something to us that was part of a private conversation or thought that we had, our faith informs us that when something like this happens, we ought to stop and consider, hey, what is God up to? Instead, the king of Aram gives an order that is very much fitting of the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Now, if Elisha can read all of the king's deepest thoughts and plans, and the king's officer has correctly discerned that Elisha is gathering all that intelligence supernaturally, he can hear your deepest thoughts. Knowing that God is clearly at work here, why doesn't this king take pause? But he doesn't. Instead, the king sends his forces towards the city of Dothan in northern Israel, where he hopes to capture Elisha there. But the king of Aram is up against a God who uses addition by subtraction. From verse 15, Elisha's servant wakes up early and notices a large army surrounding Dothan. And so the servant reports this to Elisha from verse 15. He says, oh my Lord, what shall we do? Well, it's not surprising that this servant saw this imposing force surrounding him and got scared, frightened. It was imposing. But Elisha, the anointed servant of God, also knows what's happening. He's a person that has witnessed God's miraculous power over and over and over again. And one who has processed the miracles that he's witnessed through the eyes of faith. And so he gives the appropriate response to this situation in verse 16. He says to his servant, don't be afraid. Why isn't Elisha scared out of his wits? He can see the same army that his servant sees. An army with horses and chariots sits right outside his door. And they are not there to deliver terms of surrender or a peace treaty. They're there to capture Elisha, bring him back to the king of Aram where he faces an uncertain end. Yet Elisha sees things quite differently. He tells his servant in verse 16, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So he prayed in verse 17 that his servant could see the heavenly force assembled around the Aramean army. And he did. And in a most powerful echo of this verse, the Apostle John tells us that whenever we are confronted by our enemies in life, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? So at this point, Elisha could have prayed uh, that the heavenly army swoop in and destroy the army of Aram. Instead, Elisha prays for subtraction. From verse 18, strike these people with blindness. And God answered by taking away their sight. Elisha then further stirs them into confusion by saying in verse 19, this is not the road to the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. 
To me, uh, being a Star Wars fan, this is very reminiscent of a scene from, uh, <laughs> from the first movie. So those of you that clap, no doubt, know where I'm going with this. Uh, Luke, Chewbacca, and Obi-Wan Kenobi were in this town, and they were stopped by their enemies, the Imperial Stormtroopers. Darth Vader music. Uh, Obi-Wan then uses his Jedi power, waving his hand in front of the stormtroopers, saying, these are not the droids you're looking for. He can go about his business, and they leave in safety. So Alicia proceeded to lead this blinded army of Aram into the heart of Samaria, where the king of Israel was waiting. And when Elisha and Aram's army arrived in Samaria, Elisha asked God to restore their sight from verse 20. And God did open their eyes. And they could see that they were utterly duped and now hopelessly surrounded by the army of Israel. And so recognizing Elisha's authority as a prophet of Israel, the king of Israel asks him, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? And Elisha answers in verse 22, would you kill men that you have captured with your own bow and sword? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and go back to their master. Only God can remove the inevitability of cataclysmic conflict between two opposing armies and turn it into an occasion to cater a meal. If the army of Israel destroyed the army of Aram, that would have solved their short-term dilemma and ended their short-term threat. But there is a strong clue in the text as to why Elisha felt led to respond as he did. And we see this in verse 23. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. My Irish mother-in-law, Kate, has many sayings. And I can think of one in particular when it comes to the unique resolution to this crisis here from our passage. She would say, you score more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. And that's what happened here. The decision not to kill the army of the Arameans and to treat them humanely led to a peaceful pause in their threats, albeit short-lived, because if we read on in this chapter, beginning in verse 24, we see that the Arameans will later lay siege to Samaria at a time when Samaria was in the middle of a desperate famine. And that represents further fulfillment of God's promises of covenant curses for his people to keep his commands in avoiding idolatry. But here, in this text, and for a moment, there is peace. Brought about by the powerful arm of God through the instrument of his hand, Elisha, using addition by subtraction. Now, hear me, I'm not trying to use uh, this catchphrase, addition by subtraction, as an axiom for this passage. But it does act as a descriptor of one of the methods that God uses in exercising his supernatural power in fulfilling his promises. After all, in about a hundred more years, the Arameans, also known as the Assyrians, will totally sack Samaria, 
take its citizens into captivity and thus further fulfill the promises God made uh, in Deuteronomy 28. Friends, God is the ultimate promise keeper, both in the promises he makes, in the curses he promised his, his people if they willfully disobeyed him, and is rich, incomparable promises of mercy and grace which God showed as this passage concluded and which, we, which are now found through faith in God's Son, Jesus. We are not always faithful. God is always faithful. And we as God's children need to own this difference all the time. And we need to utterly trust in the one who never, ever breaks his promises. Now, throughout Scripture, God could be seen adding things by first subtracting something. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, you may recall that Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden. But on their way out, they they were promised the coming of a great Savior. Or... uh, when God removed his people from generations of familiar servitude in Egypt, he brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. But what about Job? Job lost everything. In a matter of minutes, he lost his home, his flocks, and his family. And in response, Job worshiped God by saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in in Job's life at the end, in Job 42.10, we read that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job and gave him twice as much as he had before. Many of us, perhaps some here today, and I know I'm one of them, are dealing with loss. The loss or soon loss of a loved one is the greatest pain in life. For a person who doesn't have faith in Jesus, it can be a tragic and hopeless experience. But for the Christ follower, death is merely a doorway to a new and entirely wonderful experience. An experience that will last forever. As the result of the fall in the Garden of Eden, God promised death. And so death came into the world, both spiritual and physical. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is appointed for a man to die once, Hebrews 9, 27. And so someday, because God is an ultimate promise keeper, he will take away our lives. Without faith in Jesus, that is the tragic end of life. Yet we should be comforted through this great good news as Jesus himself told us, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he goes on to say, do you believe this? And that question, my prayer is that question resonates with us this morning. Do we believe this? He also said, let not your hearts be troubled. 
believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. That is amazing, amazing good news. That through simple faith in Jesus and his finished work, dying on a cross for our sins, God exchanges our mortal, corruptible bodies with new, incorruptible ones. And we will live with him forever. Addition by subtraction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, we we pray that as we uh, look at some of the losses that we have in life and and the pain that we experience, and maybe as we or others that we know approach uh, a time of of death, uh, that we would be comforted, constantly comforted by this good news that is better than we could have ever asked or imagined, as the text tells us from Ephesians. And so, Lord, we give you thanks and praise, and may we be surrounded at all times by that great good news. In Jesus' name, amen.